It's good for us to be reconnected to what we're eating. Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, Harley, and this is the Ranch Collective Podcast, where we talk with Western industry professionals to share, educate, and give a platform to those inside the industry and to give those who are outside of it a look at the day-to-day by having real conversations with guests. If you are new here, welcome, and if you've been on this journey with me for a while, welcome back. Today, Christine is back with me, and we're taking a peek into her cheese class to learn all the parts of cheese and what makes different kinds of cheeses different. We also chat about what it means to be a corporation and the ways that can affect your business versus being a different type of business, and how being a larger business can affect your abilities in positive ways. So, with a short, sweet intro, here is the rest of the interview. Hey you guys, it's Harley. I'm just hopping in before we start the episode to tell you about my other business, Pullage Company, and our retainer package. So Josiah and I co-own a photography business where we partner with other small businesses, advocates, and influencers to create social media content. Recently, we decided to develop retainer packages for our small business customers who need photo content on a regular basis but don't have an in-house photographer. As you all know, social media is a huge part of growing your business and increasing your brand awareness, so fresh content is important. We are currently offering one, three, and six session packages with different time choices. You'll get high quality, professionally edited photos in unlimited locations, and a phone or Zoom planning session so that we can make the most of our time together. For more information and pricing, please head over to our social media at Polish Company, that's P-O-L-I-C-H Company, or click the link in today's episode notes. Okay, so cheese. So we just talked about um, your favorite part of cheese or your favorite cheese. Can you tell me just like in general, so you told me in general, there's like three big categories of cheese. So what are some of like the cheeses that fall into each of those categories? Well... Can I take this a different direction? And can we talk yeah. about like what cheese is made of and what makes cheeses different? Yeah, let's go. Um, okay, I'm going to do my little class for you. So this is going to be interactive. Yeah. I'm going to make you guess some okay. of the ingredients. So, okay, guesses as to what the first ingredient, there's four ingredients in cheese. Guesses as to what the first ingredient in cheese is. Well, I know we did. We did go over, I think, in our pre-interview call. I know one of them is milk. Yes, very good. So milk is a super important ingredient in cheese. Most commonly, we see a cow's milk cheese made. That's because cows give the most amount of milk. Takes about 10 pounds of cow's milk to make one pound of cheese. For reference, there's like 8.6 pounds of milk in a gallon. So it takes a little over a gallon of milk to make a pound of cheese. Um, Globally, cows make up 85% of the milk market. Do you have any guesses to what animal comes in second of the world milk market at 10%? Ooh, of the world. Uh, yeah, world. Goats are actually third at like one to two percent. Is it horses? No, horses are in like a underlying category. Like they're like in this small little percentage. Okay. Um, am I like thinking in the right? Is it is it sheep? Do she, is that different? Sheep are fourth at like one point four percent. Oh, okay. Uh, this is a tough one. It's okay. Is it something that I can like that I would actually? Is it pigs? No, no. <laughs> is it it's a wild a, animal or a domesticated? Like what we would consider like a wild animal or like a domestic farm animal? We would probably in the U.S. probably consider it more wild. Is it deer? No. Water buffalo. What? 
Bloggers yeah. are <laughs> yeah, so in Southeast Asia, primarily in India, um, cows are like considered sacred in the Hindu culture. And so um, like they have the most amount of cows per capita in India, but they have, um, but they primarily milk water buffalo. So like if you ever see like a buffalo mozzarella, it's like that's usually not the brand of mozzarella. That's actually this like super oh. creamy, rich mozzarella. So tasty. Recommend you try it. Um, but we don't really see a lot of it here in the U.S., but um, I just that's one of those facts that I can't get it out of my head. I heard it one time. Really should probably double check all the sources, but I heard it from a reputable spot. So I that's um, really cool. Yeah, yeah I would have. I would not have guessed that. Yeah. And so milk varies like season to season, too. So depending on the time of the year and what those animals are eating, that milk is going to change. So especially in like a pasture based herd. I mean, you've seen pastures change, you know, that that nutrient density changes so much, especially here in like the Midwest from spring to fall, that you're going to get a lot of changes in the milk. Um, okay, hopefully this hits with you. Sometimes this doesn't hit. But like uh, in Napoleon Dynamite, there's that scene. Do you, you've seen Napoleon Dynamite? Yeah, I've seen it. Okay, okay. There's that scene where they're trying all those different milks or whatever, and like they're mm -hmm. like, this cow got an onion patch, and like, cause the milk tasted different or whatever. That's like a legitimate thing that like. Okay. That like if um. So, that so I know with like bees, for example, we had a neighbor who housed bees, and next door to where the bees were was a blueberry patch. Mm -hmm. So their honey tasted like blueberries. Is it like similar, maybe like, obviously I don't think it would taste like blueberries exactly, but it would be like, that might be sweeter than like a cow who's feeding on digest grass. Yeah, it's, um, it doesn't quite play out to the intensity of like a single source honey, um, but you still get different flavor notes and stuff. So, so that's, so milk is one of the ingredients. We have three more ingredients. Any guesses as to what the second ingredient is? Let's see if you remember. We just, I barely chatted about it, so. <laughs> I honestly have no idea what that is. Okay, I'll, I'll go through them. I know, I was like, wow, I'm really putting you on the spot. You have nobody else to <laughs> lean on here, my bad. Um, so salt is super important in the cheese make for actually for the preservation of it, but also for the flavor. Um, so as we're making cheese, we're lowering that acidity. Just think about if you left a cup of milk out, let it get warm and let it, you know, kind of curdle or whatever. You know, if you stop that at a certain point, you could actually turn that into cheese, but instead you're just letting it turn into soured milk. And that salt is really what helps in that preservation and in, in turning that into cheese. Um, so salt is important. And then um, rennet, is a really important ingredient is like the third ingredient in cheese so rennet is the coagulant of milk so that's what makes all those solids in that milk stick together um, traditionally we saw animal rennet used um, so that was a byproduct of the veal industry in like the 1970s um, when veal got really unpopular and kind of PETA had a kind of a stink about it um, we started switching to more of a vegetarian rennet and now primarily most cheeses use like a vegetarian, like a synthesized rennet. Um, but if you can try a cheese with the animal rennet, the flavor complexity is, there's a lot more flavor complexity. I think it tastes better personally, but. Um, so, yeah. so you mentioned specifically that like it can't, we used veal before. So what is like, what exactly is mm -hmm. it? So, so, okay. So in, Sorry, in no, question. no, not at all. And I think this is an okay spot to get into it too, is that, 
So rennet is, so it, it's found in um, the lining of a calf's stomach. And what it does in the calf's stomach is so, so cows are made to, they nurse and then they move around and they might not to get, the calf might not to get to nurse for a long time yet, right? So all that milk, it all turns into a big cheese curd basically in that calf's stomach and it allows that calf to pull nutrients from it for a long time. And so rennet is actually the, it's the same enzyme that we use in cheese. And so that's where you find it is in the lining of a calf's stomach. So you can see why it's not used that commonly anymore and then why we've switched to more of a vegetarian rennet. Um, how they found that, there's lots of different theories as to, you know, how the, who was the first person to figure out what rennet does and how it works. But um, yeah, that we can get into that if you want to, but it's just kind of so that's where that's what it, that's what it's used for in the okay. calf's stomach in a ruminant and any any ruminant so calves or calves or lambs too same kind of an idea. So, um, but it's not found in like the lining of the adult. Correct, yeah. correct, because it does because it kind of goes away. The enzyme isn't really needed anymore once that animal switches to a different diet, basically. Okay. So once they switch off of milk, um, yeah. Um, you could also use like citric acid, so like lemon juice or vinegar if you've ever made buttermilk at home. Okay, um, and you get that little curd and whey separation. So little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her curds and whey. She had some kind of a rennet in her milk. And then the fourth ingredient that really I think is one of the biggest distinguishers is cultures. So this would be molds, bacteria, and yeasts. So this is very different. The mold that a cheesemaker uses when making their cheese is very different than the mold that your cheese picks up when you forgot it in the back of the refrigerator. So uh, you can still eat that cheese um, that you can just cut that mold off if it's a hard cheese like a cheddar or a gouda, um, but it is gonna be a different, cheesemakers have like a whole catalog of cultures that they can choose from that are gonna give all sorts of different flavor, texture differences, you know, all sorts of things like that, that they're gonna use and so, any combination, those four ingredients, it's really fun when I do a cheese class because we look at this plate of completely different cheeses in front of us, six completely different styles of cheese. And when you look at them, all four of them have the same base four ingredients, um, but but the differences that those each ingredient plays really affects, really affects the sensory experience kind of overall. So it's just kind of cool, I think. You know, like I say, in those four base ingredients, like all six of those cheeses, are so different taste texture wise. And what I love about cheese is that cheese is the perfect vessel to connect people to their farmers and their cheese makers, especially at this level. You know, I went to school to study that, you know, what happens between the farm and the fork. And here I am getting to talk to people about, you know, what that is. Like one of my favorite things to do is to talk about farming and to talk about farmers and to talk about cheese makers. And the size of creameries that I'm working with, I'm really able to develop these connections with those people. And so when you go to the store, you know, the price points on the cheeses that I'm selling or that I'm working with are anywhere from $20 a pound to like $45 a pound. So you're not going to go buy a pound of a cheese for $45 if you have no idea what it tastes like or no idea why you're paying that. And what it does for me is it or for, you know, is it allows me to tell these people, you know, this is what makes this cheese special. This is the person that you're supporting when you buy that cheese. Um, and 
you know, it just kind of, it's really a nice, I don't know, segue to kind of get to, get to really connect people back to where their food comes from. I think, I think we missed, people are missing that, you know, we're more and more generations removed from the farm. And as one of the lucky ones that does get to keep farming, it's really fun to be able to be that bridge that connects people, you know, back to their roots, back to agriculture. Yeah, well, and I hear a lot, a lot, a lot from, you know, friends who are in the industry, like the average person is, I think, either three or four generations removed. Josiah's second um, from the fam, like from the family farm that his family was on for generations. And then even though he's like gone back into um, ranching on and off for his entire life, um, but he's still second generation, technically removed from the farm. And then I'm like fourth. My grand, my grandpa's parents had a farm in Arkansas before they moved to Southern California in the 1920s. That's how far I am. And it's, it's been a hundred years, right? That's a, that's a lot of generations and a lot of knowledge and access that's been removed even just through a couple of generations. And I like that word you just used access. Like that's exactly what it is. Cause I think, you know, we started, farmers started to get criticized maybe for the things that people, you know, that they're doing because people didn't understand what we were doing. So then we kind of walled off for a while. At least I know a lot of us did like kind of, you know, like, like, I don't want to show you because you're just going to critique me the whole time. And so this kind of, I don't know, it's just really nice to be able to reconnect with people because I think people are searching for that. The best way to, explain and to show people and to tell people why you're doing things the way that you're doing them is to really show them and to talk to them about it and just edu- I mean again educate we keep coming back to that point of educating yeah and having I mean that's a big part of why I decided to start the show one was like out of a desire for no not really out of a desire for education that's where it wound up going but like mm-hmm. out of a desire to connect um people with really great businesses who I believed in like what they were doing. And then as I got like a handful of episodes in, I think I know exactly when it was, when I talked to Brandy buzzard Mm -hmm. the first time and she's agreed, she's agreed to come back on. I'm so excited to talk to her again. But um, when I talked to her the first time and we talked about like specifically the educational process and like how she works to educate people through social media, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is where I want the show to go. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember like having that realization and then not knowing how to implement it. And I'm like, now I'm, you know, two years later, I'm like finally figuring out this is how I can be of service to people and help connect people is like by having people like you on and they're like, oh, I don't know anything about this cheese. Maybe this person that Harley talked to, Chrissy, maybe she knows something about this cheese or she can tell me like, why is this $40 at the grocery store? Like right. maybe it's not a cheese that you've tried, but you're familiar with that kind of cheese. You're like, oh, well, this is typically, this is how it's made. And this, my experience, this is why it would be like that. Mm-hmm. And that's where I want the connections to be made. I want people to feel like they have access to the professionals and the people who are working in the industry to be able to ask those questions. No, I love that so much. And like, it's just really, I, <laughs> I was going to tell you this, I forgot. I've been getting a little bit of FOMO listening to your podcast um, because so growing up, I always like 
I always wanted to be a rancher, not, I'm not like, not necessarily a farmer, but like, I loved horses. I loved, I wanted to, I had, my parents always told me I could get a horse when I was 10. We got a 28 year old horse when I was 10 and he was not really a good fit for me at all because my parents had no idea what they were doing. And so, but it's so fun for me to get to listen to, you know, all these people that you're interviewing that are, that are outliving a very different farming, ranching lifestyle than I am. And to just feel that kind of connection, you know, um, sometimes farmers' biggest critics are other farmers too. And so it's so fun for me to get to listen to other farmers talk about the way and the why that they're doing things, even as a farmer. So, you know, I think that's, I don't know, I love what you're doing with this. It just makes me, it makes me happy. Thank you. And it's, um, it's nice to hear that from people who are <laughs> like actively engaging, like to hear that from people who are coming on and who are interested in sharing. So thank you mm-hmm. for saying that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's uh, just, it's nice too. It's like, it's like listening to a conversation between two friends while, I mean, I think a lot of us in farming and ranching work by ourselves a lot too. So I have a podcast on like probably eight, nine hours a day. I'm actively working with my hands most of the day. Um, but to, you know, to keep my brain busy and to keep, just to keep engaged and to educate myself at any opportunity. Um, I get asked all sorts of crazy questions at cheese classes and by people. And it's so fun to have like, exactly like you just said, a reference point of, well, I maybe don't know exactly how to answer that, but this page or this person, I think they'd be able to give you a lot better insight into that, you know? Yeah. What's the craziest question you've been asked? Oh my gosh. I don't, I don't even know. It's like, it's hard to think about. So, um, well, I was a dairy princess before this too. I know I listened to the interview with Andrea when Uh she talked about that she was a dairy princess and like, it just made me laugh because she's like, I'm not really sure why I was. And like, it's, we need people to be able to talk about agriculture to be representatives for the industry or whatever. But, um, but that was probably where I got asked crazier questions because I was a Princess K finalist. So I had my likeness sculpted out of butter at the state fair. And at the state fair, you know, we're walking around with crowns and sashes on that say dairy princess. So you're just going to get some kind of interesting questions and like people that, you know, are just, they're, there just goofing. Like, you know, they just, they don't, I don't know. They, they, they're just asking just for the surprise factor, probably more than anything else. But I don't, I think it's mostly, it's like the kinds of questions of like, what can you make cheese out of? And like, what can you, what, what animals can you all milk? Like I've gotten asked, like, can you make cheese out of like human milk or whatever? And you technically, you cannot actually, it's not the right fat and protein structures to be able to do it. Um, but you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a crazy one, but I understand why people are asking it. I would have assumed that you could. Yeah, no, it's not the right. So from what I've heard, at least, or what I've looked into, (laughs) it's just not the right fat and protein structures. So each different animal has like a little bit different a amount of fat and protein in their milk versus the water, lactose, all the other minerals and stuff like that. Um, But then the kinds of fats and proteins, so like getting down to the nitty gritty food science part of it, and like some are like hydrophobic, some are hyd- like some like water, some don't like water. So like, yeah, from what I've heard is you cannot, 
you can make a mixed milk like if you mix breast milk in with like human milk i mean human milk in with cow's milk you probably could make cheese but not sure why you'd want to i guess it's not something i plan on <laughs> plan on experimenting with i guess <laughs> um I love that you said hydrophobic and then like went back and you're like, well, it either likes water or it doesn't. Um, I watch a lot of TikTok videos and there's one particular TikTok TikToker that I watch watch and she's um she does car detailing out of Southern California and she always talks about car paint being hydrophobic and how that's good. Like we want it to like not want the water on it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that just reminded me of it. And I was like, Hey, I know that word. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's, it's just, you know, uh, yeah, that's so funny that all the different, the different uses of all those kinds of words, I guess too. So, yeah. Um, okay. So what, um, I'm going to go back and now that we've talked about like what makes up cheese, I think I can probably ask the actual question of kind of what makes up or what, like what, what makes something like a hard cheese versus a soft cheese? Mm -hmm. Like, is it just like the amount of each ingredient in there? Is it the additional things that are added, et cetera? Yeah. So the two biggest things for what makes it a soft cheese or a hard cheese um, would be the amount of moisture in the cheese. So the kind of the fifth component, so there's the four ingredients, but the fifth component will be the recipe. So that includes like cooking the curds or or not, or pressing the cheese. So like the biggest difference between like a cheddar and like a brie, for example. So a cheddar, we're we're cheddaring that cheese. Cheddar is a noun, it's also a verb. So we're lowering that acidity over a certain period of time while expelling as much moisture as possible. The goal of cheddar is to live forever, that that cheese will never go bad. And so we're getting rid of as much, like that's why a cheddar, they would say a cheddar is sharp the more it's aged. That's because it's that little bit more like I don't know, just kind of those acidity levels in that cheese, basically, too, that are allowing it for other microbes to not grow because they can't handle the environment of that cheese. And that's what's going to make it sharper. That's what I think. There's not an actual definition of sharp, but that's my interpretation of it. But so what we're doing is we're pressing that cheese. We're we're making it into cheese curds, basically. We, We flatten it out during the cheese make make it into cheese curds and then we take those cheese curds and we press them again at like a really high like a probably like 50 psi or so so like we're pressing them and we're expelling even more moisture so it's a really tight knit curd not very much moisture and the right acidity level so that cheese can live forever right and what that's going to give us is as that cheese continues to ages age more that moisture is going to come out of it basically. So it's more that moisture is going to expel off of it or drain out or it's just going to dry out a little bit more versus like a brie. So, and that has to do with those cultures too, with those cheddar cultures that you're using in that. With like a brie, um, that cheese is just being pressed by the weight of itself. So we're not actually adding any extra pressure. So it's going to hold in a lot more moisture during that actual, you know, during the cheese make. And what that extra moisture is going to do, it's allow going to allow for that specific culture to bloom on the outside. Um, once that culture blooms on the outside, that cheese gets wrapped up and it starts that breakdown on the inside. And like a brie does go bad. Like there, a brie can get too ripe is what we would call it, basically, where it's going to smell ammoniated. That's because it's broken down too much. Um, 
and it's not going to taste good anymore. It takes a lot for a cheddar to not taste good anymore. Um, so it's basically, yeah, so that kind of that fifth component of, of the actual recipe and the cheese make is really what's kind of make that different too. Okay. That's really cool. Like this is all like so cool because it's something <laughs> I would have ever thought of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like just the variation. I mean, and you know, people are creating new recipes still too. Like I should have looked up the amount of cheeses in the world. Like, I mean, there's just a crazy amount of cheese recipes and all those cheeses are going to have slightly different variations to them, you know, different, you know, it's just people, it's allow, it's a kind of this fun combination of being able to be artistic and really kind of express like the, I don't know, what do you call it? Like the, the art of the cheese make versus the science technicality of the cheese make. There's certain points you need to hit, but your creative avail availability between those points is really what's going to make the cheese unique. Um, yeah, that's so cool. I, and I love like hearing you be passionate talking about it because <laughs> that's also something that, um, when people are looking to connect or to learn, they want to learn from someone who's passionate about it, who can make it interesting. So, well, and I'll just use this opportunity too to talk about, you know, the difference between as consumers, especially us consumers, we're so guilty of when we go to the grocery store, we want that cheese or that product, whatever it is, to look and taste the exact same as the last time we bought it, right? And so with larger scale cheese production, we're able to, you know, take out the fat and protein and then add it back into the right levels for that specific cheese, right? Um, or we're able to just kind of adjust it so that it's a really, really consistent product and it does taste the exact same every time. Doesn't mean it's a bad product, just makes it a more affordable, consistent product that the consumer really likes. Um, with an artisan cheese, what those animals, especially at either a single source or a farmstead level, you know, that fat and protein is going to change throughout the lactation period of that cow or of that sheep or of that goat right so the amount of fat and protein is going to change what those animals are eating is going to change and so that product that you bought two months ago is not going to taste like the product that you bought today because it's from a different batch it's from a different time of the year you know all those different factors there's a lot more variability in the factors and so it's something that you should celebrate, you know, we should celebrate the differences in artisan cheese and not be critical of them because it's really fun, I think, to do like a, what do they call that in wine, like a linear tasting or whatever, where you taste the mm -hmm. exact same wine made over different years. It's the same kind of an idea that you can do with cheeses too, just tasting different batches throughout different points of the season. Uh, yeah, I was going to bring that back to wine because, you know, if you're buying a bottle of barefoot wine it's going to taste more or less the same like probably unless you're like a professional wine taster in which case you're not probably not buying barefoot wine um, <laughs> it's going to taste the same pretty much every single time mm -hmm. um, whereas if you go to your local winery though you know the wine that you get this year is going to taste different different from the wine you get next year and like maybe if you're not someone who consumes a lot of wine you might not notice the differences they might be super subtle same way I would assume probably the same way with cheese if you're not like a cheese person the differences might be subtle mm -hmm. enough that you don't notice but if you are into that um you do notice and hopefully mm -hmm. that's something you've all you're also prepared for 
Exactly, exactly. And I think that's a good point too, is that we always like to talk about this during my tasting classes is that if you're not tasting things the same way I am, that's totally okay too. Like just because I've really tried to focus in on specific things, my palate has a completely different memory bank than your palate has. So like, you know, what I'm tasting, it might not be the same. It might not bring up those same memories or trigger those same thoughts. Um, but I try to always bring up points of like, okay, so this cheese, like there's a cheese that's called Prairie Breeze Cheddar. It's from Milton Creamery in Milton, Iowa. And it's a cheddar. It's got kind of this sharpness to it. Um, if you pair it with certain things, it gets almost a nutty flavor. I always like to pair it with dried pineapple because I think it has this like tropical pineapple-y sweet flavor to it too. Mm -hmm. And when people try those things together, then it emphasizes that point and you really do see it. And so I think that my job as the cheese guide, I guess we'll call it that, or the as a cheese lady, you know, the, the person taking you through this cheese tasting experience, it's like my job is to help you be able to see how that cheese can differ, you know, depending on, on what you're doing with it too. Yeah. And um, that actually brings up another point that I know we wanted to um, touch on, not just now, but it was, um, anyways, this is a really bad transition. We were talking, <laughs> we were talking about how um, larger farms don't necessarily, like they, larger doesn't mean bad and corporate doesn't mean um, bad. Like you mentioned earlier, cheese, when it comes from a larger um operation a lot of times it's more consistent people are it's cheap they're able to make it at a cheaper price point so more people can afford mm -hmm. it um and a lot of times like smaller farms or smaller operations are making something that's a little more artisan that is a little more um expensive but i would love to talk a little bit more about yeah the like the scale of farms yeah well and that was i just think i just think it's such an important Point. And I was just re-listening to who was it that you were talking about that said we can't, um, I wish I could remember exactly what she said, but we, we have to make sure that the product that we're providing, we're, that we're not sending people away from beef because we're only doing artisan cuts of beef, you know, I'm trying, was, who was that? What was that? It was Brandy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was just re-listening to that too. And like, it's such a good point. And as a small farmer, I'm not going to lie to you for a long time. I was like, Oh, I'm so mad at all these large scale farms coming in because so dairy is the last sector really of agriculture that we saw that. And we've seen it in poultry for a long time. We've seen it in pigs for a while. We've seen it in beef and dairy is one of the last ones to kind of get, and I don't even want to say commercialized because as long as it's a family owned farm, I'm, fine with that you know like that, that hits for my morales or whatever i guess um but like they're able to do things so efficiently and like even looking at like methane digesters and stuff the amount of dairies using that are able to harvest all that methane from their manure to power their farms to par power homes in their area you know they're able to do things that as a small farm i can't do and they are able to also make a really consistent product um and that's not to say that you know those are just good for our economy we are everybody deserves to be able to afford to eat and animal proteins whether that be milks or meats are 
oh, really, you know, they should be able to be an affordable protein or affordable nutrition source for people. So I, yeah, it's so important. Yeah. One of the things that I kind of come to understand is that, um, some of the like synthetic, um, fake, like, like, so fake, fake meats, like some of the synthetic yeah. meats that we're coming up with, like they are those price people out. And like, I think that you should be able to eat whatever you wish to consume, regardless of if it's what I'm consuming or not. So like if synthetic meat is your jam or beyond beef is your jam, by all means, like go mm-hmm. for it. Like that's not my business, what you're putting into your body. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it's at such a high price point, because it is expensive to make and create, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Um, but it does price people out. Mm-hmm. So when people are advocating that we should get rid of, um, natural sources of those proteins, like, like, like beef and like milk and stuff like that, we're automatically pushing out people who cannot afford to purchase those more expensive, more synthetic forms Mm -hmm. of those. And like, um, also I'm a big believer that like the less you're doing to the less that you have to do to what you're eating. So like (laughs) you you can cut it like this is, this is like vulgar to say this way, but like with meat, you can cut it off the animal and that same day you can cook it. You can eat it. You're doing almost nothing to it. You don't have Mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, where, uh, and like, same with, um, a lot of, uh, like fruits and vegetables, you can pull them right off the tree or right out of the stock, wash it, eat it. You're good. Mm -hmm. Um, but then the more things that have to have to be done to whatever it is, the harder time your body, this is my understanding, the harder time your body may have like breaking it down and using it to provide that actual nutritional value. Right. Yeah. Like, like exactly. You said the more, you know, I think that that is a, that is a trend that we're seeing is that people are going back to more natural foods, you know? And I think that's something that is good for our, that's good for our environment too, that we are going back towards natural foods. You know, we're just, we're looking at what we're consuming and we're really mindful of that. And that's gotta be, you know, that's good for us. It's good for us to be reconnected to what we're eating in general. I think it's, uh, especially if you're someone who does buy stuff straight from grocery stores and there's just so we're clear to anyone listening, there's nothing wrong with shopping only at grocery stores and not getting stuff straight for farmers or ranchers. Mm -hmm. Like that's what the vast majority of people do. That's great. You're still supporting those industries um, Mm -hmm. by buying it from a grocery store. (laughs) But for people who do that, they have, they do, again, they have that disconnect from the actual process of the food being ground, harvested, et cetera. And I think, you know, as somebody that my goal is to make cheese on our farm, you know, um, right now I, I'd like to get down to about 15 cows and make artisan cheese right on the farm. I could not feed all the people in my area with cheese from 15 cows anyway, you know, like it's kind of looking at it that way. And and really, I think it's important that if you are financially able to support small farmers, you know, or not even just small farm, but artisan producers you know that's awesome and yeah and that's and you're like you're able to do it like even the cheese and charcuterie boards that i'm selling like people buy those as a treat you know it's not something that you need to have 
every single day. You are, I'm not going to shred a $45 piece of cheese onto my eggs in the morning. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't make, that doesn't make sense. I'm probably going to use a little bit, you know, more affordable product for that. And so, um, you know, there's a time and a place for all of those things and just being able to appreciate those artists and products when they come along, um, is really good, really good too. So, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think that's important to say, cause I think people always assume too, that as a small farmer looking at it getting smaller, um, you know, people are like, yeah, what do you think about all those big, like, that is a question that I get a lot at classes, like all these, all these corporate farms, they've got thousands of cows. And it's like, yeah, and they do a really good job with those cows. Like, I've gotten to tour a 9000 cow dairy here in Minnesota. And those cows were clean, they had feed in front of them all the time, their somatic cell counts were low. So like, they were really healthy. Um, they looked content. They looked happy. If there was a hoof trimmer right on site, so if a cow was limping, he could sort her off, right? They could sort her off right away and she could go get trimmed and get her foot taken care of. You know, if I have a cow with a sore foot, I can't get the hoof trimmer out there the same day. That doesn't mean I'm not doing everything I can do for her, but those economies of scale allow them to have access to all that stuff, you know, right there. And I think that's, it, it's important to you know, understand that that is, I don't know, that they're, they are taking care of their cows. The, 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 you know, the, the system doesn't work if those cows aren't well taken care of basically. Yeah. And I know like, this was something that we also touched on in our earlier conversation, but when I was talking to um, Cass, she said, you know, corporate is a tax designation. It isn't necessary. It doesn't mean like big about like, corporate for, it doesn't mean like the way we think of a corporation, right? It's a tax designation status. And go ahead. Oh yeah. Well, like 96% of farms in the U S are family owned, I think, or in Minnesota, especially, I think we're closer to like 98% of farms are family owned, you know, it's like, yeah. And something can be corporate and be family owned. Mm-hmm. Um, and by being a larger farm or a larger ranch or a larger, whatever you may prefer to call yourself, um, that also means you're taking care of more family. So it wouldn't just be taking care of your family. It's taking care of your family and your brother's family and your neighbor's family, because they also work for your farm. And so, but you may just be bigger because you require all 10 of those people to be on site full time. Um, that doesn't mean you're doing it. It doesn't mean you're automatically doing a bad job just because of that. Well, and that's such a great point too, is that like, you know, you know, I, if, if one of my siblings wanted to come home and farm with me, we would have to get bigger. We would not, you know, the amount of cows we have could not sustain us. And so it's a choice to get bigger so that you can accommodate more of those families to join. That's exactly, I'm so glad you said that like that. Cause that's yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's, do you have anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up our conversation? I don't think so. I think we hit a lot of it. It's, you know, it's yeah. Sweet. Okay. Um, so my last couple, I do have a lot, a lot. I do have, (laughs) I do have a couple of questions, um, for you. Um, the first one is what, and this can be 
personal, it can be work related, it can be anything. What have you, what are you the most proud of? Hmm. I am most proud of myself for um, coming back and trying to farm in the first place. Um, I think for a lot of time, my biggest limiting factor was I always thought I had to marry a farmer like my mom and my grandma did in order to be able to come back to the farm. Um, and the summer before I graduated college, I worked for a vegetable farmer. She was a woman who farmed get vegetables organically in the 80s in Wisconsin in the middle of big farmland. And I was telling her about how, you know, I just wish I could go back and farm. And she just said, well, why can't you? And that was the first person to say that to me. And so I'm proud of myself for being like, yeah, why can't I? You know, that we are sometimes we're our own biggest limiting factor. And you can do anything that you set your mind to. And what you're doing doesn't have to look like the way everyone else does it. You know, so. And that's a really important point to make because you just said like your mom and your grandma either had to or felt like they had to marry a farmer to come back and take over the family farm um and that in the past we like we know for sure that's been like that's been the historical role of women in ag with the exception of the few and Mm -hmm. now you get to be one of quote unquote the few and I think we're seeing that more commonly now is that like daughters are going back and they're like well I don't I can marry someone outside of the life and I can teach them the way Mm -hmm. I would like the way I would have been taught had I married a farmer. And I have four nieces at home, you know, that it's so important to me to foster them. And my oldest niece, Clara, she, you know, if you ask her what she wants to be, she wants to be a veterinarian and she wants to be a farmer. And it's not that I want my husband to be a farmer. No, she wants to be the farmer. And I just think that makes me so stinking happy to hear this next generation of women and to see them be empowered from a young age. I just think I was given a lot of support by my family throughout the years and it was my own limiting belief. And I don't want my nieces to have that limiting belief even cross their mind that they can't do it. And I think that's a, that's a really good way to think of it is like, you're providing this incredible role model for these little girls who are growing up, um, and are seeing you do all of the farmer things. So they're like, oh, well, if Aunt Christine can do it, I can do it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to get into, specifically get into cheeses, learn more about um, cheeses and how to get involved? Um, number one advice would be if you're able to go and work for someone. I am a strong believer that the best way to learn something is to go and do it with your hands, be there doing it every day. So for anybody that's like still in school or still trying to figure out what they're doing for their life, if you don't have to come back home to the farm or you don't have to go, you know, if you aren't being called to go somewhere directly, think of it as like a, um, I don't mean to say a study abroad, but that same kind of an idea, that experiential learning that's going to be the best way to dig into it. If you can't, which totally makes sense, um, there's a lot of really good pages on Facebook and Instagram um, to follow. I have like a whole array of like nerdy cheese books that um, I look through all the time. Um, Cheese is getting really trendy and it's really 
fun to be able to be a part of that kind of trendy community right now too. So go and do it if you can, if you have the time and the, you know, the ability to go and, you know, experience it. Otherwise, um, you know, make your Facebook feed or your Instagram feed full of cheese, cheese and farming. That's pretty much what mine is. So <laughs> perfect. And speaking of making your feeds full of cheese and farming, where can people find you on social media and online if they want to follow you? Yeah. So I am on Facebook and Instagram at the greater good MN. So that's the greater spelled G R A T E R like a cheese grater MN. And then my website, if you guys want to check that out too, that is um, the greater good MN.com. Um, yeah. So all my cheese boards and stuff, I just do those local, but I do now have the option to be able to do virtual cheese classes so I can get a box of cheese sent to people. If you want to do a virtual class or gift that for the holidays or something too. So that's always kind of fun. Um, just send me a DM or a email about it too. Ah, that sounds super fun. All right. Well, thank you again so much for yes. coming on the show. This has been such a pleasure. I'm so, I feel like I've learned a ton. So thank you. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to connect with me on social media. It's at Ranch Collective Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes as soon as they're released. See you next week.